I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 52 for our Old Testament Scripture reading. Here we have before us one of the most famous passages and prophecies of the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah concerning the person and work of Christ. And this is, in fact, a passage which lies in the back of Paul's thought in this morning's New Testament sermon. We'll read beginning in verse 13 of Isaiah 52 and read through the end of chapter 53. The Lord Himself speaking through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, My servant shall act wisely, He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, although there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Now turn me, if you will, to the book of 2 Corinthians, 
chapter 5. Sermon text this morning will focus only on one verse, verse 21, but for our broader context, we will begin reading in verse 17. Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We ask that as we consider the work of Christ, that Your Spirit would open our eyes, that we might see and believe. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for five chapters now, we've now been in this book for four or five months, and for five chapters, Paul has contended one primary thing, that Christ has ushered in a new world by His death and resurrection. The age of the Spirit has come and has displaced the era of the Mosaic legislation. The new creation has dawned. New creation that pours out through the preaching of the gospel. And Paul himself has defended his ministry as a herald of this new world order, of this new creation. What we have in chapter 5 before us in many ways is a highlight reel of the benefits that we have by being made part of this new creation. You remember at the beginning of the chapter, the focus was on the resurrection from the dead, that great hope that we have that will come at the last day. One that is brought about by the regeneration, that new life, that new creation that begins in the heart of the believer as he hears the word of Christ and turns to Christ and believes, and is delivered from darkness. And now, in the last third of the chapter, Paul has focused on the third R, right? Resurrection, regeneration, and now reconciliation. The fact that man and God have been reconciled together through the blood of the cross of Christ. It's a great summary of the benefits that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, but a question still remains. How is this possible? For five chapters, Paul has been asserting that the death and resurrection of Christ has ushered in a new creation, but he has not addressed uh, up front the question of how that has come to pass. How is it that the death and resurrection of Christ has secured our salvation? Well, here now in verse 21, it brings us to the heart of the letter, and in many ways, the heart of the gospel itself. When we ask, how is it that the cross has wrought salvation, the answer is found in a single word, substitution. 
And that is the message that Paul brings out here in this last verse of chapter 5. So we'll consider the question of substitution, Christ's righteousness for our sin. And in fact, that Christ has traded places with His people. So we need to consider two things here in this verse. First, we'll consider the matter of substitution in the first half of the verse. And then secondly, we'll consider the matter of righteousness. What is it that Paul means by this here in the second half? So substitution and righteousness. You know, it's the, the spring is, is finally sprung upon us and we're finally seeing uh, uh, not as many rainy and cold days as, as we had. Uh, we know that we're moving towards a, tra- uh, towards a trajectory of, of the summer. And of course, summer is inaugurated with uh, uh, Memorial Day. And I don't know, I haven't celebrated Memorial Day out here uh, with y'all, but at least if it's like the rest of the U.S., uh, Memorial Day consists of uh, plenty of barbecues and cookouts and grilling and lots and lots of meat. Um, it's not a bad day when you get to have a lot of meat. Um, but what is it that we celebrate and commemorate Memorial Day for? The day and the purpose of Memorial Day is to commemorate the fallen troops in this nation, those who have died to give up their lives for the sake of the people of this country, that we might be free. When we think about the death of Christ, we recognize that dying for someone else is not a new concept. So I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it that makes Christ's death so special? Right? Christ is not the first person to die. In fact, everybody dies. In fact, Christ was not the first person to die for another. Again, we, we commemorate the fallen heroes. You go to any war memorial, and it commemorates that very thing of troops who have given their lives for the sake of others, even others that aren't their family members or friends. Christ was not the first person to be wrongfully convicted. There are many instances of people who have been put to death for something that they had not done. And Christ was not the first to be crucified. It was a common Roman practice. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it that makes Christ's death so precious? Because it is precious. Well, the key is found here in this verse when Paul identifies Christ as the one who knew no sin. Something we perhaps might take for granted, but there is unanimous testimony in the Gospels regarding the sinlessness of Christ from His conception to His death and resurrection. Christ being conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, not tainted with Adam's sin. The beginning and end of Christ's ministry is bookended by the declaration of the voice of the Father from on high, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. As the Lord, as the Father pronounced that affirmation at Jesus' baptism, and again at Jesus' transfiguration, just as He was on His way to the cross. Even at Christ's trial, His sinlessness is attested by His enemies, The judge who presides over this mock trial himself, Pilate, says, I I find no guilt in this man. You think of the thief on the cross. Turns to Christ and says, what have you done? You haven't done anything wrong. Remember me in paradise. In Christ's death, you have the Roman centurion who says, truly, this is the Son of God. One in whom there was no sin. 
throughout the rest of the New Testament, this sinlessness of Christ is attested by the apostles in the book of Hebrews and 1 John that Christ was tempted, yes, but he remained sinless, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Paul himself tells the church of Philippi. And yet, as the sinless Son of God, he came to take away our sins. And in fact, even Jesus' own resurrection in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is spoken of as his vindication before the heavenly tribunal that here is in fact one who has committed no sin. In other words, Christ is morally pure in every respect, in thought, in word, and in deed, in accordance with God's own righteousness. When we read through the rest of Scripture, we find that death is the judicial penalty, the consequence for sin. It's a reality that we must all face, that we are all sinners, and so we all therefore merit death. And yet we are told repeatedly that Christ himself was sinless. He did not merit death. He did nothing to deserve death. And yet he was put to death. The Gospels all bear witness to the same historical event, that the author of life, sinless though he was, was condemned as a criminal was crucified and put to death and buried. Standing before Pilate's tribunal, he was condemned as a common criminal. Even as Pilate sentences Christ to death, Pilate says, I I see no wrong done to him. I see no uh, uh, wrong in him. In other words, what we see is happening to Christ is an injustice of the highest order. And yet, I want you to note what Paul says here in verse 21. The point that Paul is making is not that Pilate condemned Christ and put him to death, true as that may have been. What Paul says here is something much more startling, that God has put him to death. We need to let that sink in. That the holy and just God has condemned his sinless son to death. Why is that the case? Again, in this compact verse, Paul gives us the answer. This was done for our sake. This is done on our behalf. Here, Paul is bringing into view the concept of representation. Christ came as our representative. It's a good word, but I think maybe needs some filling out. Again, as we simply contemplate what this verse is telling us, when we think representative, we tend to think a lawyer. I remember seeing a billboard in Greensboro, North Carolina a number of years ago. I had a big picture at an intersection of the lawyer's face dressed uh, you know, in this three-piece suit, and, and underneath it was a sign that said this, just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. All right, it's a slogan as if made and penned by Saul Goodman himself. Here's a lawyer who for better or for worse, represents you in the courtroom. Even with the best lawyer, even if you have an honest lawyer, and I don't mean to suggest that all lawyers are dishonest, but I'm saying even with an honest lawyer, if you're guilty, the best you can hope is that that lawyer can strike a plea bargain. Maybe knock down the sentence from a felony to a misdemeanor. But if you are found guilty, your lawyer's representation of you 
doesn't extend outside the courtroom. The lawyer doesn't go to prison on your behalf. The, the lawyer does not go and sit in old Sparky's seat on your behalf. The, law, the, the lawyer is not going to face lethal injection on your behalf. And so when we speak of Christ as our representative, it's a, it's a good statement, so long as we understand this. That it's more than what we commonly think of when we think of having a representative. Perhaps a better word is an order. Christ, as we are told, has not come to enter a plea bargain for our sake. To knock down the charges of sin down to a misdemeanor. So we could maybe spend some time in purgatory or something like that. Christ's representation is not restricted to the courtroom to let you to your own defenses after the sentencing. Christ says, oh, here at the cross, I've I've been able to make you just endure enough sin. I've dealt with the major sins, but not the minor sins. That's not what's being told here. What we are told is that Christ has come to take our place both in the courtroom and in the execution chamber to bear the full penalty in our place. See, that's not simply representation. That's substitution. It's a trading, trading of places. And you see, when we think of representation, we need to think of substitution because the background context that we have is not the American legal system when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has given a clear schematic for what is in fact transpiring here. It's something that the prophets themselves and even Moses bore witness to. You think of Isaiah himself who said in chapter 52 and 53 concerning the servant of the Lord. That the servant of the Lord would act not simply as another lamb. But he would come and be smitten as the the lamb of all lambs. And when we think lamb, you need to think the day of atonement. On the day of atonement, Leviticus chapter 16 There is an innocent lamb that is slaughtered in the place of sinful Israel. And of course, we see as the book of Hebrews tells us that the problem with the old Mosaic order is that Israel keeps sinning and the blood of bulls and goats are unable to reckon with sin once and for all. So something more final is needed if ever Israel is to come out from under this sacrificial bloody system. And that's the very thing that the prophets attest to when Isaiah himself says that here comes the suffering servant as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. One who would be pierced not for his own transgressions, but would be pierced for ours. One who would be crushed not for his iniquities, but who would be crushed for ours. One whose death affects our peace, as Isaiah says. In other words, reconciliation. One whose wounds affect our healing. In other words, new life and resurrection. And for all these things that happened, the Lord laid upon His servant and His Son the iniquity of us all. You see, the Old Covenant provides the blueprint for what Christ has come to do. The prophets long foretold. This is what Jesus Himself says after He is raised from the dead. That Moses and the prophets and the Psalms all attest to one thing. The coming of the Son and the salvation He brings by His humiliation unto death and His resurrection from the dead. 
And here we find the hinge upon which the whole of the new covenant turns. That Christ would die a substitutionary death for sinners. For God so loved the world that He reckoned His Son to be the greatest sinner who ever lived. Though Christ Himself had done no wrong. Christ died as the Lamb of God. What is it that John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus as He comes to be baptized? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even prior to Christ's death, the prophets recognized Christ as the one who had come to deal with sin once and for all. Even at the start of Christ's ministry, He knew what He was sent to do. It's not an accident of history, but it's something that God had determined from eternity past. And so if we were to ask, why is it that Christ died? Think of the many answers that we may get. Some good, not so, some not so good. Some may be a little muddied. Think about a common answer you might get when you ask somebody, why is it that Christ died? And they say, well, He died to demonstrate His love for us. And that's a true statement insofar as it goes, but we need to, again, perhaps uh, refine this answer just a little bit more. Let's say, take for, uh, for instance, if uh, um, you know, you know, the, the cops are called to the scene of a crime uh, in, in Chicago at the base uh, of the Sears Tower, the, the Willis uh, Tower as it's called now. And somebody had jumped to their death, and they left a suicide note, trying to figure out why is it that this person died. And this person said, oh, I did it to demonstrate my love for my ex-girlfriend. That's not love, that's suicide. It's also kind of creepy. What we find is the cross is not a Hallmark card. Christ did not die as a mere example. When we say Christ died to love His church, we need to understand what is meant by that. Christ's death was a judicial death sentence. Christ died to take the place of sinners. Christ dies as, died as our substitute to satisfy divine justice to pay the penalty of sin, to, to, to reckon with God's wrath once and for all. That is what we mean when we say that Christ died to demonstrate His love. That He might bear the wrath of God, that we might bear the mercy of God. Over and over again, we are told that God is holy and He does not wink at sin. And here we find at the cross, God directs His wrath against His sinless Son instead of us, to fulfill all righteousness. That the righteousness of God might be demonstrated, as Paul himself tells the church of Rome. Christ was reckoned a sinner that we might be reckoned righteous. And here the good news becomes even greater. Christ dies for the sinner in order to justify them. Again, we need to think, what do we mean by justification? It's a word that we uh, throw around quite often, and rightfully so, it's a terrific word. But I think many of us have a very truncated understanding of the doctrine of justification. Many of us think that when we ask, what is justification? They'll say, well, it's the forgiveness of sins. And though it is certainly not less than that, what we find here in this passage is that it is, in fact, even more than the forgiveness of sins. 
Right? Again, have another uh, illustration um, before us. Let's say you decide uh, to go off to college. You go to some Ivy League institution. You become a philosophy major. There's no scholarships. And at the end of four years, you now have a degree in philosophy from Harvard or Yale or Princeton. And also you have mounds of debt. And of course, with a philosophy degree, you do the only thing that you're able to do with an undergrad degree in philosophy is you become a barista at a Starbucks. It's a nice little jab. Um, what you find is that with your job, you're not ever, ever able to get out of student debt. That debt is crushing. Even the interest alone keeps compounding, and you're not able to break out from under it. And so one day, there's a benefactor who comes and says, ah, you know what? I've paid off all of your student debt. That's pretty good news. That's nothing to balk at. You don't have any money in the bank, but at least you're debt-free. Then, of course, you're on your way to work the next day, and brakes on your car go out, and you, start, you cause a 15-car pileup on the interstate, and guess what? You're back in debt. You're now without a car. You're back in the same place you were the day before. What we find here is that Paul is laying out a principle where we find that the good news we have is better than we ever imagined. Verse 19, he says that we've been reconciled to God because God has not reckoned, He has not counted our sins against us. Gets us out of debt. And yet, we find here in verse 21 that God has done even more. Notice the parallel here that, 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 that Paul is making. God made Christ to be sin so that we might be made righteous. That's a full substitution. Christ bears our sin. We bear His righteousness. It is a trading of places. Christ did not come simply to wipe the slate clean so you could screw it up again 15 minutes later with no hope for recourse. What we find here is that God counted His Son to be sin so that we might be counted positively righteous. Christ did not die simply to take our place. Rather, He died in our place so that we could take His. And so, 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches uh, not one, but two reckonings, two what we call imputations. Our sin imputed to Christ, and now Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So that when the Father looks upon you, what He sees is the righteousness of Christ Himself. He doesn't see Adam in the garden prior to him eating the forbidden fruit. He sees his son who was fully obedient unto death. That's why Isaiah himself in singing one of the servant songs of the Lord will say this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Like a bride on her wedding day. So is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. It's a beautiful garment. In other words, the good news that we have is not that you're, you're, simply that your sins have been pardoned and you're now back at zero in the bank account. Rather, this is invaluable. This is inestimable. 
we are counted as righteous as God Himself. Christ's righteousness has been fully reckoned to our account. It's not by any paycheck we have earned. We have done nothing to deserve it. Rather, it was a paycheck, as it were, that's been deposited by a great beneficiary, or a great benefactor, I should say. The only thing we could do is simply receive it. Simply trusting in the work of Christ. The biblical word for that is faith. To trust in Christ and what He has done in our stead, that we did nothing to deserve such love. So great is the love that He demonstrated for sinners. All of my debts, not just in the past, but all of my debts in the present and in the future have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. All of my sins wiped clean. It is a top-shelf righteousness credited to our account. It's like a debt collector saying, not only have I pardoned all of your debts, but I've now given you unrestricted, unrestricted access to all of your company's profits. It's a big difference. And so, this is how the, the good news of the gospel becomes great news. The Puritans would say that the forgiveness of sins is the, is the Christian's chief happiness. And here we find in justification, that's just one piece of the pie. Think of J. Gresham Machen, um, founder of our denomination, dies in 1936. Last words ever recorded, how thankful he is for the act of obedience of Christ. There's no hope without it because Christ's righteousness has now been made ours. And so now when the Father looks upon you, He sees His Son. He's declared you to be righteous. And now He says, be what you are. Now that you've been declared righteous, He's given His Spirit to make us righteous. To mold and to shape us into that righteousness that He has declared us to be. And Paul's message of the gospel is this that we have through the proclamation of Christ crucified and raised a message of amnesty that has gone out to a dark and dying world, a message of reconciliation. The end of hostilities has come. The benefits now are ours to be received if only we would turn to Christ. This is the heart of Paul's letter. This is why Paul is so adamant to defend his ministry. Because it is this gospel that is at stake. As Paul's detractors are showing up and preaching about themselves, they have missed the real beauty. The beauty is not found uh, in the intelligence or the charisma of the preacher. It's not found in a health and wealth sort of message. It's found in the message of the cross. And it's this message that must be defended at all costs. So we have a simple exhortation this morning that if you have not put your hope in Christ, it's a reminder that there is the wrath of God that is coming upon all mankind for an appointed day in an hour that we do not know when it is coming. And the exhortation to flee from the wrath to come, and there is only one hope of salvation. That is found in the Lord Jesus Christ who has made full provision for our sin. Reconciliation being freely offered. But if you have put your hope in Christ, 
I think there's a similar message. As we feel the weight of indwelling sin, and we look at our own life and are discouraged every day and every evening wishing that we did not struggle with the same besetting sins that we always struggled with, and now struggle with the assurance of God's love for sinners. Here we have the good news that comes even still. That because Christ has fully satisfied the wrath of God, if you have put your hope in Christ, there's not an ounce of God's wrath that remains for you. Christ bore all of our sins at the cross that we might drink deeply from the fountain of God's mercy and grace. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for this good news found in Christ. We ask that You would teach us to rely not on our own works, but to trust in Christ's work, fully satisfied for us at the cross. And that by it, we would strive to put sin to death. That we might walk in light of Your mercy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.